Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. In looking at this topic, my purpose and my goal is, uh, is quite simple. Our purpose is to look at one particular aspect and that is the cross of Christ. And to look at it maybe uh, in a fresh light from a different perspective that can enable us to appreciate it better. You know, we, uh, we talk about the cross of Christ as the central theme of, uh, of the gospel and of the scriptures. And there's one particular verse that the Apostle Paul talks about. Okay, I think we're almost there. Uh, I think we all know it, where Paul says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Christ. And we use that a lot. And, and, and uh, it never dawned on me really what that meant. It almost seems like it's just words. Yes, we know the cross is central, the cross is theme, but what does that actually mean? Paul got to a point where he caught a vision of the cross that so transformed him that he said, I don't want to talk about anything else whatsoever. This is my purpose today in looking at this particular topic to see if we can all together catch a fresh glimpse of the cross of Christ. I want us to keep this goal in mind that I just mentioned, this goal of the cross of Christ and looking at it in a fresh way. This is my whole purpose. This is where we're headed together. This is where I'm aiming. And uh, of course, when I talk about Enoch, Enoch is representative of a special group of people who are right now in heaven. We know three of them by name. Isn't that right? Enoch and Moses and Elijah. And Genesis 5 tells us about that. As far as Enoch is concerned, it says all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God, took him. And so, of course, this man Enoch, if we were to represent this, he was taken to heaven uh, and he has been in heaven for quite some time. If we were to time that, if we were to time that from the cross and the span of, uh, of history from the beginning to the cross is approximately 4,000 years. Enoch has been in heaven for about 3,000 years before the cross. That's a long time. And he's been there, he talked with Adam. And so Enoch has witnessed the great bulk and majority of this world's history. Very interesting situation we have in this man. And I want us to keep that uh, in mind as, as, we, as we go along. The time period that he uh, spent in heaven. Of course, he's not the only one there. We have another uh, one, Moses, as you know, in, in Jude 1.9, it talks about his resurrection. But Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Durst not bring against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Here is Satan and Christ. Christ has come down for the purpose of resurrecting Moses. And the devil contends with him and says, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you think you're doing? You have no right to resurrect this man. And Christ rebukes him, as it says here, and he resurrects him. The interesting aspect in this story is we have to keep in mind, this was the very first time ever in the entire history of the universe that someone is brought from the dead and resurrected. Up until that point, every person who died stayed dead. This is where, this is a very significant event, and the devil comes to contest that very strongly, and so... Moses, of course, holds this uh, position, and he was approximately 1,500 years before the cross. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered about this, but I've ever thought, how long did Moses stay dead in the grave before Christ came and resurrected him? Ever wondered about that? 
We're not told specifically in the scriptures. Uh, Jewish tradition says it's three days. Isn't that interesting? And the Spirit of Prophecy says a few days. So three days would work. Now, if you remember something, when Moses died, the children of Israel stayed around the mount to mourn for Moses for how long? For 30 days. After three days, he was already in heaven, looking down on them, mourning for him for 30 days. Isn't that interesting? You know, it didn't take God long to do that. You have to remember something. Uh, Moses really tugged at the heartstrings of God because of the sin that he did and because of his uh, appeal to the point where God said to Moses, Moses, don't talk to me anymore about this. That is crossing over to the promised land. You see, God had a special surprise in mind. It didn't take him long to come and resurrect his dear friend Moses and take him to the kingdom. And of course, the last person in this group is Elijah. In 2 Kings 2.11, we're told it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And when he got to heaven, and the time here, of course, is approximately 850 BC. When he got to heaven, I'm sure he got quite a warm welcome from Moses and from Enoch. You see, there's not many humans up there, and so they would have really bonded together. They're the only ones from the same neighborhood, same planet, planet Earth. And I am quite certain that they would have spent many a hundred years, hundreds of years, bonding and growing in knowing each other and discussing things. You with me? And I believe they especially discussed things, of course, with Christ, the divine Son of God. And in their discussions with the divine Son of God, I believe uh, one prominent subject matter of discussion was this wonderful plan of salvation that one day the Son of God would come and undertake. You see, I want to throw a challenging thought here, and maybe I might share some challenging thoughts to this. I really want you to keep your gray cells active and your oxygen reaching your cells because I want you to think on what we're going to talk about today. Generally speaking, we think of Moses and of Enoch and of Elijah as having made it. They're in the kingdom, they're saved. Oh, if we would only be where they are, right? All the woes and troubles of this earth are behind them. They're sitting in the celestial city with the Son of God, having the benefits and glory of being in the kingdom. And I want to put something forward to you, brothers and sisters, that even though Enoch and Moses and Elijah were in the kingdom. Their place in the kingdom was not yet secure. You with me? Actually, their eternal salvation was not yet guaranteed. We don't generally think of them this way. We think they've made it. They have nothing more to look forward to. It's all there. But actually, they had something to look forward to. And that is the plan of salvation. Because their place in heaven was still dependent on something that would occur in the future. Which makes their position in heaven all of a sudden in suspension, awaiting something to take place. Enoch waited for 3,000 years. You with me? I want us to keep that point in mind as well. And this is why I'm saying probably the most talked about subject between them and the Son of God would have been the time when he would come as a man and accomplish salvation. And in accomplishing salvation, he would actually 
secure forever their place in the kingdom. And this is why in the scriptures we have this wonderful promise of the Savior to come. In Genesis 3.15 it all started, Jesus says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This wonderful promise of the seed that would come and would take on Satan and defeat him. This was the promise that was given to mankind to sustain mankind in this despair of sin and darkness. The significance of this promise, I don't want us to miss it, and this is why I want to illustrate this. This promise that was given all the way from Eden of the seed that would come, it sustained Adam and Eve, it sustained Enoch, it sustained Abraham and Moses and Elijah and all the people in the Old Testament, every single one, every believer had this wonderful promise that they looked forward to with great longing and anticipation, the time when the seed would come and crush the serpent. And the reason why I want to focus on these three men is these three men hold this unique position that they were alive for many hundreds of years as all these things were being carried out. Not only that, but they would continue to be alive, of course, after these things were carried out. And I want to look at a before and after situation as relates to these three men. That's why I want to look at it from that perspective. And so for all this time, Enoch and Moses and Elijah were looking down on the earth for 4,000 years, beholding the kingdom of Satan, while Satan was not yet crushed and not yet defeated. Isn't that right? They're seeing the work and the carrying out of Satan and his kingdom and everything that he's doing and waiting with earnest desire. When will this seed come to take on the devil, to take on the serpent and crush his head? And so it was a glorious promise. It was repeated to Abraham, of course, Genesis 22, 18, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice, this seed, this glorious seed that was to come and liberate mankind from the tyranny of the devil. We don't perhaps think of it this way, that for 4,000 years, the serpent was not crushed. It is for this reason that Satan came and contended with Christ when he came to resurrect Moses. You realize that? In essence, he came and said, whoa, hold on a minute. You have no right to resurrect Moses because you have not yet defeated me. You with me? It was an issue of jurisdiction and right. God had promised one day he's going to crush the serpent's head. And, and Satan was like, hold on a minute, you, you can't resurrect him yet. You haven't even defeated me. And so this promise of the seed is of great significance. Isaiah, we know this verse, puts it this way, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. One day the seed would come and accomplish these things that were yet future. He would be the everlasting father of a whole new race. He would become the second Adam. And so Isaiah was one of those who with great longing and earnest expectation was looking forward to the coming of the seed. Daniel is another one and he records some of the accomplishments that the seed would do when he would come, the Messiah, in Daniel 9.24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. 
Daniel looked forward to the time when these things would take place. We have to realize something, brothers and sisters. Transgression was not finished when Daniel wrote what he did. Isn't that right? It was something yet to happen. Reconciliation for iniquity was something not in place yet. Making an end of sins was something that he earnestly looked forward to, and not only him, everyone else in the Old Testament, but especially those three men who for hundreds of years were sitting in heaven, waiting and longing for the time when the Messiah would come and accomplish salvation, and their place in the kingdom would be secure forever. And this promise sustained all these people, the promise of a savior, <clears throat> the time when the devil will be defeated. The situation got really bad. At one point, the devil's uh, influence on the earth was so bad that God had to actually intervene and the flood took place. You remember that? This was an outworking of the kingdom of Satan and a demonstration of how Satan is working while yet being undefeated. And I just picture these three men up in the kingdom in heaven. Of course, uh, Moses was later. So Enoch would have witnessed that looking down from heaven on earth and watching the proceedings and what is taking place for 3,000 long years. Some of us, you know, make it to 90 and 100 and we think, wow, this brother or sister have lived a long time. 3,000 years. That's a very, very long time. He will be a most interesting person to talk to in the kingdom, right? The things he has, he has seen. He saw the Garden of Eden and the angels at the door and basically everything else since then. Wow. And they were longing for this coming of the seed. And this coming of the seed, we know, happened when Christ came. That's what the scriptures talk about. But when Adam and Eve sinned, I want you to think about this. And I'm going to ask quite a few thought questions throughout, throughout this uh, study together this morning. When Adam and Eve sinned and fell, what was the one thing that they needed desperately? Okay, salvation is true. Maybe I'm looking for a particular aspect. When sin came in, what came in with sin? Death. And so what is it that they needed? They needed life, which of course the plan of salvation would supply. And this is why you see God many times, at the beginning of course he gave Adam and Eve a sacrifice, and that sacrifice involved blood, and we see a lot of blood in the Old Testament because we know the blood represents life. That is what was needed. And so when the seed would come, it would bring what humanity needed the most. There are a lot of associated aspects to that, but the antidote to death is life. And this is why in Matthew, we find that when Christ came, he essentially says that. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, he says, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. This was the time when this life would be given. Christ came to give his own life as a ransom for many. This was the hope. Uh, you know, is this beautiful song. One of my favorite songs, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom, Captive Israel, that mourn in exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. This was, you know, the summary of everybody who was living during that time before the cross, looking forward to the time when the ransom 
the seed would come. Now I have a question for you. When was this eternal life promised? All the way at the beginning. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, it puts it this way. It says he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's the promise that there is life going to be given. And on the strength of that promise, those who believed, God rewarded their faith. And now was the time when this life is given, when Christ came to this earth to give his life. And in coming down to this earth, of course, he came to meet Satan on his ground. And this period in earth's history, brothers and sisters, when Christ came and met Satan face to face and died and was resurrected, this is the crown jewel event of the entire history of the universe. There has never been anything like it before and there will never be anything to match it again. This is by far the most important event ever. It's more important than the second coming. Of course, right? There would be no, no second coming without that. And as evidence of that, as was mentioned before, God is going to move the capital of the universe to that spot where this event took place as an eternal memorial of the accomplishment that happened around this period. And when we say the cross, I don't only, and this is the Bible uses that, we don't only mean, you know, that day when he was on the cross. It's the period of the life of Christ culminating in the crucifixion. And so when Paul says, God forbid that I should glory in the cross, he's not just glorying in the death of Christ, but also in the resurrection. All these events associated that the cross is the central pillar of them. This is why I put it this way. This is a very significant event when the Son of God came down from heaven to take on Satan face to face. And it was showdown. It was winner take all. The hope of all the ages, the desire of all nations was now here. The seed had come. And all through the trials of Christ, all through his life, he was step by step defeating Satan until it finally culminated at the cross and ultimately in that morning when he walked out of the grave, risen, the risen Lord. And of course, you remember the words of Christ on the cross. What did he say? Very significant words. He said, it is finished, right? <clears throat> what was finished? Well, that's a big question. We can spend a whole series of meetings discussing that. I want you to think about what was finished. What was he referring to? What was in his mind? Sin was finished. All these prophecies that were given that the seed would accomplish and do, it was finished. I want to point point one particular aspect that Christ had in mind and was referring to that is of great significance to us. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel appeared to Joseph one day and told him, verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from there sins. Amen. Up until that point, salvation was still future. But here is the package of salvation. The angel is essentially saying, this child that you're going to be, that's going to be born, this is the package of salvation. What this will accomplish, this Jesus is going to accomplish salvation for his people. Now I want to ask you a thought question. Is Enoch, Moses, and Elijah part of his people? And he shall what? Save his people from their sins. Where were these people? They're already where? In heaven. I want you to think about that for a minute. 
And towards the end of the life of Christ, of course, in John 17, he says, I have glorified thee, verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He finished the work that God gave him to do. What's the work that God gave him to do? Saving his people from their sins, making reconciliation for iniquity, putting an end to sin, bringing in everlasting righteousness, finishing the transgression, becoming the everlasting father of his people. All these things, this plan of salvation is now finished. And so this is the significance of the words of Christ when he says it is finished. In other words, this was the time when the seed crushed the serpent's head. And for the first time in 4,000 years, the devil was finally crushed and defeated. Do we realize what happened at that time? Do we really realize and understand? And all this time, these three people were watching from heaven, looking on what was taking place. Not only was Satan crushed and defeated, but something else Christ says was to happen. In John 12, 31 and 32, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be what? Cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. What's Christ talking about? The Bible, the next verse says this, he spoke about which death he would die. In other words, Christ is saying, when I die, when I'm lifted up on that cross, when I die, something is going to happen to Satan. He's going to be cast out. And all this time in earth's history, he was not yet cast out. And that's why Enoch and Moses and Elijah were waiting and longing and expecting what would take place. The book of Revelation records in a bit more detail this particular event that Christ is referring to here after the cross of Christ. Remember in the book of Revelation chapter 12, there is a woman standing on the moon clothed in the sun. On her, crown is a, on her head is a crown of 12 stars and she is pregnant and she has a child, a male child. Who's that child? Of course, it's talking about Christ because it says he shall rule all nations with a rod of iron. And then it says her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. What event is that? Resurrection and? Ascension, correct? And then it's after that that we read these verses that we're very familiar with. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was what? Cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. When did this casting out take place? This is what Christ was referring to when he said, if I be lifted up, that's when the, uh, the prince of this world is judged and he will be cast out when I'm lifted up. All too often we miss the context of this passage and therefore we miss the import of what took place in heaven to Satan when he was crushed on earth. He lost something in heaven. And the next verses confirm that very, very clearly. Notice what verse 10 says. And I heard as a result of this, or after this, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto the death. This pronouncement is closely linked with the war and the casting out of Satan. When 
did salvation come? When Christ said it is, it is finished. You see, brothers and sisters, when Christ died and accomplished salvation, this announcement reverberated throughout the far reaches of the universe. That this controversy between Christ and Satan is now finished. Christ has won. And now salvation has come. And strength has come. And the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ. And you know who else heard the announcement? Enoch and Moses and Elijah. And now to them as well, salvation had what? Come. Even though they were already in heaven. Now the promise that Christ would save mankind has been accomplished. You with me? We don't realize, brothers and sisters, the significance of what Christ accomplished. Listen, if what Christ did made a difference to Enoch and Moses and Elijah who are already in heaven, how much more for us here on earth? That's when Satan was defeated. And as a result of that, of course, it says here, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. I don't need to ask you, when was the blood of the Lamb shed? Of course, when he came to give his life as a ransom for men. And the next verse, verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Wow! Someone knows he's been defeated too. Rejoice ye heavens. I put it to you that Enoch and Moses and Elijah stood at the very front row of that choir of rejoicing in heaven. And the devils come down very angry because he has been defeated. Brothers and sisters, the cross of Christ has done something in this world that has turned it totally upside down. Totally upside down. And if we only realized and appreciated what that really means, maybe our life and our experience will be also turned upside down. And you know, when this, when, when this dawned on, on my dull conscience a little bit more, I appreciated a little when Paul said, you know what? I don't want to glory in anything except the cross of Christ. What that did for humanity is everything. Everything. And so Enoch waited for 3,000 long years for that day to come, for that pronouncement to be made, for his place in heaven to be finally secure. Now, when Christ rose, you remember, not only did he rise, but other graves were opened, and the Bible says many saints rose and went with him, right? And when those saints rose, we don't see Satan coming and objecting or contending, do we? Why? Because it was game over. It was finished. And Christ took these captives and obtained the keys of hell and of death and took them with him to heaven. And all of a sudden, the population of human beings in heaven increased dramatically. For hundreds of years, there were only three. And when Christ came back, he came back with a good group of other human beings as samples of his victory. And that he will gather that harvest one day, ultimately, all those who believe in him. Now I want to ask you a thought question because I know when I, when I say this, some people might, you know, get a little bit agitated. So oh, this brother is saying some radical things here. That's not my purpose to agitate you. But to really look at what Christ accomplished from another perspective, hopefully so that we can appreciate it a little bit better. 
And here's my thought question. Was it possible for Christ to sin? You sure about that? In other words, was it possible for Christ to fail in his mission? Of course it was possible. Because all these temptations and all these face-offs with the devil were not just a a movie. They were not play-acting. The devil actually knew that it was a winner-take-all, and so did Christ. And God took a real risk in sending his son on this mission. A very real risk. Now, praise God, we don't have to consider, you know, what would have happened. It's only a matter of uh, hypothetical, you know. Praise God, he won. We don't have to worry about, oh, look, maybe he'll, it's a done deal. He has already won. But I want to ask you the question. What would have happened to Enoch and Moses and Elijah had Christ failed? They would have been evicted out of heaven. Not only them, the whole thing would have been a big mess. But I'm just focusing on them. The whole universe would have been put into question. But I'm not going to go there. This only illustrates something, brothers and sisters. That their place and their security in heaven was still dependent on something to happen. You with me? And perhaps we can appreciate a little better why it was that God chose to send. We'll come back to that in a minute. Why God chose to send Enoch, sorry, uh, Moses and Elijah to encourage and to strengthen Christ towards the end of his ministry there when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that? What was the significance of that? He didn't send Gabriel. He didn't send a, a battalion of angels. He didn't send a legion of, of high commanding angels to encourage his son. He sent Moses and Elijah. Those that he had talked with for hundreds of years discussing the very plan that right now he was carrying out. You remember that? And maybe, just maybe it was as a reminder for the Son of God and an encouragement that these Dear friends of his, their place in heaven forever and whom they represent was dependent on his success in this mission. That's quite something to think about. That even up to that particular point, they still were waiting and longing for what Christ would accomplish. When did that possibility of failure end for Christ? When he said, it is finished. So when was their place secured forever in heaven at the same time. And now they're living in heaven in a totally different way. I'll illustrate it this way. When you buy a house and you go take a loan, right? You can go and move in and live in that house immediately, correct? So long as you fulfill your promise or contract of paying off the house. But the house is not really yours. Your place in the house is not even secure until you pay your last dollar, correct? And when you pay your last payment, nothing essentially changes as far as the fact that you're living in the house, but something changes about your placing and your situation in the house. No one can come and kick you out now. Correct? And so we have a very interesting situation of a before and after when it comes to these three men. Christ made that final payment at the cross. And from that point... This man's place in heaven was secured forever. Now heaven was really their home. You with me? No one can kick them out. Hallelujah. Do we realize what the cross did, brothers and sisters? You know, we we look forward to heaven. Enoch was looking forward for 3,000 years. I don't even know what that feels like. 
I can't even imagine what that might feel like to wait for something for 3,000 years. You know, you wait for a bus or a train sometimes or a plane. You know, we miss planes sometimes and our wait and, oh boy, that's a level. We need to get on the plane. We nearly missed one plane coming here to America this time, actually. And, uh, and waiting and wondering and so on. And, and we get frustrated. And, and that's a very trivial thing in comparison to eternal life in the kingdom. 3,000 years before and after. And so I want to go back to that uh, illustration. I like illustrating things because it makes it clear in my head. And uh, I'm sorry. <coughs> when the scripture says that uh, now is come salvation. That's the time when Satan was cast down. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Satan was cast down at the beginning. There was war in heaven. He was cast out. But he regained access because of what he did to Adam. And now he's cast down after the cross. And it is finished and salvation has come. And salvation has come not only for people on earth, for humanity. Wherever they might be. I want to look at some practical differences now in the before and after. And looking at these practical differences. <clears throat> oh yeah, let me put that up there as well, just so we can put the time. Okay, 2,000 years as well. So we're living somewhere here, right? At the very end edge of this screen. And so Enoch has lived in heaven for more time insecure as far as his salvation than on this side. In other words, he lived in heaven for 3,000 years waiting for his place to be secured, right? For 2,000 years, he's been put his feet up, says, that's it. I know I'm not going to go anywhere. That assurance, brothers and sisters, and that confidence needs to be ours as well. Because Christ accomplished that, not just for Enoch, not just for Moses, not just for Elijah. But I'm using them because they are a very unique situation. They illustrate a group of people who were living before and who continue to live after. And they furnish us with a very beautiful picture of a before and after. And it's in the looking at the before and after picture and the contrast between the two that we really appreciate what made the difference in the middle. And that's the cross of Christ. That's what turned everything upside down. Like I said, I want to look at some practical uh, aspects as far as that. Is there a difference between a promise and a fulfillment of the promise? Is there a difference? A marked difference. If I promise you next year I'm going to come to camp and meet you, that's a promise. Now while you're waiting for that promise, you might call me, you might email me, we might have some interaction. But only next year when I come to camp, can you actually see me face to face? Can you talk to me? Can you touch me? Can you feel me? That's the reality. That's the fulfillment of a promise. You with me? Christ had made this promise. And for 4,000 years, this promise, brothers and sisters, is so significant. People went to heaven on the strength of that promise. But the promise was not the reality yet. It was yet to come. And God interacted with his people and blessed his people greatly. Based on that promise. As a matter of fact, Moses was raised based on that promise. That's how strong that promise is. But the reality was something that was still to come. Now it has come. I'm, I'm here to tell you it has come or to remind you. You know, it says uh, that wait in exile here until the Son of God appear. Brothers and sisters, the Son of God has appeared. Emmanuel has come. Let me see how uh, 
the Lord illustrated this. Luke 10, 18 and 19. The disciples returning after their mission trip, and they're very happy and excited. And they tell Jesus, Lord, even the devils are subject to us in your name. Wow. They were excited. How does Jesus respond? And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Wow. You know who heard that as well? Satan. I want you to think about that for a minute, brothers and sisters, because this defeat of Satan. Christ was saying this in anticipation of what would take place. Him beholding Satan as fall, falling as lightning from heaven. What's he referring to? He's referring to what we just read. With prophetic vision, he's seeing the results of his labor, the results of his success, the effect of his blessing on his disciples and the work that they are doing. And he's seeing the kingdom of Satan retreating and he's telling them, listen, I saw Satan defeated. And as a result of his defeat, because of what I am accomplishing, I'm going to give you power over all the power of the enemy. Question, was this power available before the cross? We have yes and we have no. We have a divided congregation. <laughs> that happens a lot. Good. I'm asking thought questions, right? Think carefully. Was what Jesus is talking about here available before the cross? Let me ask it this way. In other words, was Christ reminding them of something that they always had? Or was he giving them something that never was seen before as a result of his accomplished work? I put it to you that it wasn't there before, brothers and sisters. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there was no power before. Of course there was. But now there is an advancement of power that was never seen before that comes as a result of the defeat of Satan. Remember, Satan was not defeated before the cross. Was he? Christ is saying, listen, as a result of the defeat of Satan, when he falls, you as my disciples, you're going to have power over all the power of the enemy. Wow. You see, the words that Christ was saying must mean something, right? When he says, I'm giving you something, it means he's just that. We, say, we believe that, right? When he says, I will not leave you comfortless, I will what? Come to you. We believe that he comes, not someone else. And he says, I give you power. He is giving them something that only came about as a result of his victory over Satan. In other words, brothers and sisters, the death and resurrection of Christ placed mankind and gave humanity an advantage. A great advantage that was never available before. You realize that? Do you really realize that? Because I put it to you, brothers and sisters, if we don't realize that, we can never truly appreciate the cross. You with me? Listen, Satan has now been defeated. He has never been defeated before the cross. Doesn't that make a difference? That's a world of difference. But not only that. And so if we put it in our illustration, on this side we have... On this side of the cross, Satan is defeated. On that side of the cross, Satan is not defeated. And all through that, Moses and Enoch and Elijah are looking down on what was taking place. Brothers and sisters, this power is the result of the crushing of the head of the serpent. That's why Jesus said he builds his church on the rock and the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail. This is now battle, serious battle. Our commander has come and he has won the battle. And he's telling us, I've given you this victory. It's yours now. And the problem is this. The devil has gone out on a huge propaganda campaign that has convinced most of the world and most Christians that he really hasn't been defeated yet. And we believe that by the way we act, by the way we behave, 
and we mope around like the devil is still one day, someday going to be defeated. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, we don't realize what happened at the cross. This is a finished deal, a done deal. Jesus told his disciples, I'm giving you power over all the power of the enemy. I want to look at uh, this aspect quickly. Our time is running fast. When this is shared, I know some people might think, well, hold on a minute. This seems like it's unfair. Because uh, are we saying that this side has an advantage over that side? It seems like I'm saying that, right? Let me clarify that. Um, it doesn't seem like it. I am definitely saying that. <laughs> definitely. Make no mistake about it. The people living on this side of the cross, brothers and sisters, have an incredible advantage over the people living on that side of the cross. Tell me, where would you like to live? At a time when Satan is not defeated or at a time when he has been defeated? I wouldn't change a thing. Would you? No, I'm glad I live where I am. You understand? And the problem arises is because we say, well, hold on, this is not fair. Who says it's not fair? Why is it not fair? And someone might say, well, you know, God's character and, and it can't be different for each one. I want to explain that to you briefly because our standard of what's fair and not fair is not the criteria that God goes by. Okay? That's an important aspect to keep in mind. What seems fair or unfair to us is not how God operates. So let's not judge God based on that. Salvation is equally available to all before and after the cross by grace through faith. It was by grace through faith in the promise before the cross. It is by grace through faith in the reality after the cross. But the circumstances that surround the obtaining of this salvation are vastly different before and after the cross. Let me put it to you this way. Today, a child is born in a heathen home in the jungles of Africa, for example, right? And a child is born in a good conservative Adventist home. Do you think one of them has an advantage over the other when it comes to salvation? Is God now unfair? Now think about it carefully. Both are going to be saved by grace through faith. But the circumstances that surround their obtaining of that salvation are vastly different, right? We don't think God is unfair. If, 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 and this situation happens, correct? Here it is on a bigger scale. Everybody on this side and that side is going to stand equally on the same sea of glass, okay? We're not going to have two rungs and the, before the cross people are down there. And, oh, that's not going to happen. Everyone's saved equally. But brothers and sisters, let's not in the process of trying to make God fair, in our opinion, destroy the distinction that the cross has accomplished in this world. You with me? This is the fear and this is the danger. God is very fair. He's more fair than you and I ever think or imagine. Another point I want to close with, and this is of importance, and to me this is the seal, the seal of the difference between before and after. That's why I'm looking at these two practical aspects. Don't forget, Satan is a defeated foe. It's been accomplished. The announcement went out in public declaration throughout the whole universe. The other point I want to mention is this. Who was the first priest mentioned in the scriptures? Melchizedek, good, everybody says Melchizedek. Some people say Aaron because he's more famous, but Melchizedek is the right one. Melchizedek mentioned Genesis 14, 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Of course, Abraham met him, and Melchizedek would really not be a character we would even think about or even remember if it wasn't for his mention in Hebrews and how important he is. Melchizedek, of course, represents the priesthood of the Son of God who is said to be a priest forever after them 
order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> now here's a thought question. I really want you to think about this before you answer, okay? Was Christ a high priest in heaven before the cross? Okay, we have, we have mostly no's. All right, that's good. That's good to think about that. The answer is no, and that's correct. Was Christ a priest in heaven before the cross? The answer is a resounding no. So I want to put that on our diagram here, that Christ was not a priest. Now someone, especially as Adventists, we might think, oh, this sounds a little bit, sounds a little bit funny. Because after all, the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is everything to us as a people. It's of great significance. It's very important. And because it's so important for us living here, while we do have a high priest, there is this natural assumption, because it's so important, then it must be that that's how it's always been. Right? And this is like in the background of the Adventist psyche when you talk about the sanctuary and the priesthood. This is something that's in the background. And, and for most people, we probably never even thought about it. I never really gave it that much thought, to be quite honest. And I, when I looked at my mind, I, I had assumed, of course, he was always priest. But the evidence for that assumption was not there. It's only an assumption. So I want to challenge that a little bit because there's something beautiful here that we need to see. Let's look at some evidence. Hebrews 5.1 says, Every high priest is taken from among men, is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for what? Sins. A priest for men has to be taken from men. Easy, right? When was Christ a man? After he came to earth, not before. So could he be a priest before? Of course not. So all this time, Enoch and Moses and Elijah in heaven... They had no high priest. And Satan was not yet defeated. And the sanctuary in heaven was inoperable as far as the plan of salvation is concerned and dealing with sin. Because how will it work if it has no high priest? And no blood. And no lamb. And all these things. Now I know this might be a very hard saying for some people. I thought so too. Don't worry. But I just want to look at some of the evidence, brothers and sisters, because in missing this, we miss one of the greatest things that Christ has accomplished for the human race. Let's look at another verse, Hebrews 8.3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifice. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. When did Christ have something to offer? It was his life. He said, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. That's his blood. Did he have anything to offer before? Therefore, he does not qualify to be a priest. And it is for this purpose, brothers and sisters, that God instituted and installed an earthly priesthood on earth until the time when his heavenly priesthood would commence, when he would become a man, and when he would have something to offer. I want you to think about that very carefully. If Christ was a priest in heaven already before, why would he give them an earthly priesthood that is inferior to the heavenly one? It is because there was no priesthood in heaven. Everything was in suspension, waiting for the seed to come. It is because there was nothing there that he installed the system of types and ceremonies to point forward to the coming seed and to the coming priesthood. You with me? 
And so it says in Hebrews 8, 6, But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry. Hallelujah. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. I'll ask you again, when did he obtain a more excellent ministry? When he was here on earth, and when he defeated Satan, and when he rose victorious over death and the grave. He obtained a more excellent ministry. He now has something to offer. And that now qualifies him to be what? A high priest for his people. Hallelujah. Listen, for 4,000 years, humanity had no high priest in heaven. We have him now. Don't tell me, please don't tell me, before the cross and after the cross is just the same. It cannot be. You destroy what Christ did when you come to that conclusion, brothers and sisters. And in our effort to see God as fair in our judgment, we denigrate the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. You with me? We only appreciate what he did in the contrast between the before and the after. And this is why I'm trying to, to paint a, a picture briefly here. Okay, I, I better run. <laughs> so now, we have what? A heavenly priesthood. Something that was never, ever available before the cross. The best thing that the people before the cross had, the best priesthood that they had, was the Aaronic priesthood. Now this comes as a startling shock to some of us. I understand, so that's why I'm taking it slow and I'm giving some clear evidences in Scripture. I want to ask you another question. Since we're talking, since we're thinking, <coughs> while I'm doing all the talking, <laughs> getting a lot of blank stares from people. Where is this guy going? I'm going to the cross, brothers and sisters. I'm trying to tell you what the cross has accomplished. Now you understand why Paul says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross. The whole book of Hebrews deals with this. I want to tell you something. Do that. Do yourself a favor and do that. Sit down and read the epistle to the Hebrews from the beginning to the end in one sitting. I did that recently, and, and it just hit me like it never hit me before. We usually go to bits and pieces. I'm sorry. I wish we could read it together. We can't. I am taking bits and pieces, but do that. The entire punchline of the epistle to the Hebrews is this. Paul is saying, we now have this priesthood that no one ever had before. That's, what, that's the whole punchline of Hebrews. If you miss that, you've missed the whole point. See, Paul is not telling them about a priesthood that always existed. He's telling them about a priesthood that Christ now has obtained this more excellent ministry. That's the whole power of the book of Hebrews. And I tell you, when that dawned on my dull senses, I tell you what, it just, it just did something to me. I just saw the cross of Christ and said, wow. This cross, when we talk about the cross and we sing about the cross and we, everything is about the cross to the point that it's become a cliche, a meaningless word. Please, let us not think of it that way. It, it, it happens because we're humans. And you know what I'm talking about? Paul said, God forbid, that I, God forbid that I should glory in the cross. And we quote that. And I quoted that without understanding what I was saying. <laughs> because I thought that's what the Bible says. It's very important. But when it dawned on me, brothers and sisters, we now have a high priest that people never had before. They dreamed about what we have. They went to sleep dreaming about it. They wrote prophecies thinking and dreaming and wishing and hoping and wishing that it would happen in their lifetime. We have it now. Wow. 
When Aaron was anointed as high priest, I'll ask you another question. Remember God told Moses to anoint him? Could Aaron work and function as a high priest before his anointing? You sure about that? His anointing was important for his functioning as a high priest, right? When was Christ anointed as a high priest? Hebrews 1.8 But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That anointing is a result of Christ loving righteousness and hating iniquity. When did that happen? On earth. When he went back to heaven, he was anointed as the high priest of his people. And the evidence of that was manifested on earth on the day of Pentecost. Now he was high priest of his people. Now he is ministering this life that he obtained. Now he has something to minister, something to offer as a high priest. And he pours out his life on earth. That's when he was anointed. So could he work and function as a high priest before his anointing? Of course not. Now, I'm not saying this to insult Christ or to denigrate Christ. You know, people think that when we say begotten son, they think you're insulting him. This is the glory of what Christ has accomplished, brothers and sisters. The glory of taking on mankind. For the very first time ever in the history of the universe, we have a human being as a representative of mankind in heaven. That's what qualifies him to be a priest. This is not like when he appeared to Abraham, he put on human form. No, he took on humanity and blended it with his nature irrevocably, permanently, forever. That has never happened before. And that's what qualifies him to be a high priest who is sympathetic to our temptations and trials and is able to succor us. And so now Enoch has a high priest in heaven. Enoch helps the high priest in heaven. And so does Moses and Elijah. He was not a high priest before. He was the divine son of God. Now, the son of God is a member of the same race as Enoch and Moses and Elijah. Big difference, right? Very big difference. And if it makes a difference for them, how much more for us? And so Christ now is our high priest. Praise God. Hebrews 7, 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should what? Should arise, future, after the order of Melchizedek, and not be called after the order of Aaron. Paul is basically saying here, listen, if the earthly priesthood was good enough, then there would not be a prophecy of another priest to come. But it wasn't. And this is why God had prophesied and promised another priest after the order of Melchizedek who would arise. And until such a time, God installed this inferior priesthood with an inferior sanctuary, with inferior sacrifices as an object lesson and as an expression of the faith of the people until the time of the Reformation would come. And looking at it this way, makes a big difference in the before and after. Living before the cross was risky living. Right? Because I think we all said that when Christ came, there was a very real risk and possibility that he would fail. Living after the cross is risk-free living as far as the plan of salvation is concerned. Right? Satan's already defeated. We now have a high priest. Satan, deal with it. Game over. Job done. Salvation is accomplished. 
Now, their faith in the promise, like we said, we got rewarded. And we have three shining examples of that in the Old Testament. But don't let that, brothers and sisters, dim the contrast of what Christ has accomplished. That's my key. Just a few more verses. We're almost there. Just hold on. You with me still? Okay. Hebrews 9, 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. Wow, think about that for a minute. This is a revelation from the Holy Spirit. It says, the way into the holiest of all. What's this talking about? The heavenly sanctuary was not, the way there was not made manifest so long as there was what? An earthly sanctuary. What does not made manifest mean? Not apparent, not revealed, hidden. The people in the Old Testament time had no access to the heavenly sanctuary. Because in it, there was no high priest. That's what this verse says, right? Please don't go from here and say, this young man said some crazy heresies. He said the people, I'm just reading what the verse says, right? It says access. The way to the holiest of all was not manifest so long as there was an earthly tabernacle. That's actually why God gave this earthly tabernacle. Because there was nothing in heaven yet. Now I'm not saying there was no sanctuary in heaven. There was a sanctuary. And God was in it. And Christ was in it. But it was not working under the jurisdiction of a high priest yet. You with me? Christ was not in it as a high priest. He was the son of God. He became high priest only when he went back as a man. And of course, that's why, it, you know, this verse almost says the earthly sanctuary was like a block in the way of the heavenly, right? And to access the heavenly, you had to remove the earthly. You see, so long as this was standing, the way to the heavenly was not manifest. So to manifest the way to the heavenly, you have to remove the earthly. And when did that happen? At the cross. When that system came to an end and that divine miracle of rending the veil, where God indicated now the way to the heavenly is open because now we have a high priest in heaven. Hallelujah. And you know what the Jews did? They sewed the curtain back up and they kept on going. And so long as that goes, it blocks the way to the heavenly sanctuary. You with me? Christ said in Mark 14, 24, He said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for, for many. This is a very significant verse, because here Christ spells out the beginning of the new covenant. That's what testament means, right? New testament or new covenant. The active ingredient of the new covenant is the blood of the Son of God. The life of the Son. Now it is here, now it is ours. It's no longer by promise. Now it's a living reality. And the significance of this verse is so inexpressible. I can't express it enough. God is telling, this is how he says, take it. Now it is yours. This is my life of the new covenant. It's now yours. Because I live, you also will live. Because I have done this for you. I have done this as a man. And he gives it to us. One time, I was in a sermon and the preacher said something that was so alarming, I didn't know what to do with myself. You know what he said? He said the new covenant was still future. 
the new covenant was, and I sat there and I honestly didn't know what to do with myself, whether to speak or cry or to get up and walk or I, I, I just, did he say that? Brothers and sisters, and I don't know if you believe that, I don't mean to offend anyone if you believe that, but, but just let, let's take the words of the scriptures as they read. Jesus said, this is my blood of the what? New covenant. He's not talking about a future event. The new covenant came about as a result of the greatest event that happened in the history of the universe. If you think the new covenant is still future, what greater event than the death of the Son of God do you want God to do to indicate to you that now it's come? You with me? What greater thing do you want God to do to indicate here it is now, the new covenant? Only the life of the Son makes the new covenant an active force. And he told his disciples, here it is. This is my life of the new covenant. And I'm going to go up to heaven as a man like you. And I'm going to be your high priest. And I'm going to minister to you my life called the comforter or the Holy Spirit to be in you and to guide you and to lead you and to make you a new creature after my similitude. This is, brothers and sisters, what we have in the new covenant. Hallelujah. Amen. And amen. <clears throat> And so the scripture says in Hebrews 9.15, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, or the New Covenant, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which were called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. This is another meaty verse. Think about it for a minute. It says the sins or the transgressions that were under the First Testament. What's that talking about? All the sins that were committed before the cross, correct? I want to tell you something. Think about it carefully. Christ has now become the mediator of this New Testament. And I want to pause it before I go to the sins part. When we talk about Christ becoming high priest, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. Christ has always been the mediator between God and man. From eternity. He is always the way to the Father. But only after the cross is he now a mediator as a man. That's why the Bible says in Timothy, we have one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. And mediating as a man is his high priest office. As a man, he qualifies to be a high priest. And so all the sins that were committed under the first covenant, all the sins that were committed under the first covenant were accumulating and waiting until the high priest would come to deal with them. In other words, the sin of Moses and the sin of Elijah was not dealt with until the cross and until Christ came. And that's why their place in heaven was pending the time when Christ would come. You with me? That's why we're saying what we are saying for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant. And that's why we now have this fulfilled, accomplished reality for us. I'll close with this verse. This is my favorite verse in this context. And it puts everything we found together so well. Let's read it here in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and, uh, to 10. Paul speaking to young Timothy, the preacher, he says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Who hath saved us? What tense is that? Past tense. Who hath saved us? And called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus when? Before the world began. That's the promise that God gave. Verse 10. But now 
but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Wow. That wonderful promise that was hidden in Christ Jesus from the beginning, promised, now is made manifest. And you know what? Here is a public announcement, a news headline. Sin, sorry, life and immortality have been brought to light and death has been abolished. Death, amen, huh? People watching the video are going to wonder what that's like. That's, a, that's our signal for clapping if you're watching the video. Brothers and sisters, do we realize what we have? Christ has already accomplished salvation for us. Death, death has been abolished. Life and immortality have been brought to life. And not only to us. You know who else? To Enoch and Moses and Elijah. As a result of what Christ has accomplished. That's why the Bible tells us, when Christ was coming, he shall save his people from their sins. Now Paul says he has what? Saved us. And all during that time in the Old Testament... Death was ruling because Satan was not yet defeated. But now Paul says, life and immortality have come to light. Amen. Do you see the difference before and after? What makes the difference is this thing in the middle here called the cross of Christ. God forbid, brothers and sisters, that we should glory save in the cross of Christ our Lord. I really, really pray that the Lord will open our eyes. That's why Paul says in Hebrews 12, he says what? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's not still finishing it, brothers and sisters. He has finished it when he said it is finished. I pray that your prayer and my prayer will be, Lord, anoint my eyes that I might see Jesus as I should. We're living, brothers and sisters, now. Satan has been defeated. We have a high priest in heaven. Do we take, you know, do we make use of the advantages that have been purchased for us? All too often, we are still living like we're living in the Old Testament time. You realize that? As if Satan is still one day going to be defeated. As if Christ's priesthood, well, he has always been a priest. You know, when I realized, when I realized now I have something that these people did not have, I was like, wow, this is incredible. Now you understand why the servant of the Lord says, the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is everything to us as a people. It is the glorious seal of what he accomplished on the cross. He has accomplished that for you and me. I pray that this will be your prayer and that the Lord will indeed grant us to see the cross as we should. Because if we see it, we're not going to be sitting like we're in a funeral. We're going to be rejoicing because we have the life of the Son of God. Amen? Amen. 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 The amen sounds like we're still in the Old Testament. Yes. Amen? Yes. Amen and hallelujah. Let's pray. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.